I wanted to thank Tim for leading us the way that he has. And sometimes, I guess we feel like we want to come to church and we want to have that sort of supernatural joy. But I think it is necessary to confront the realities of life. I think it is necessary in our church service to confront the reality of a world that is terribly broken. And also then as we think about that, to remember the great burning hope that is within us. Maybe it's not burning. In fact, it probably isn't because we've had that kind of week perhaps. And really church service like this is really about reinvigorating that kingdom hope, reinvigorating that kingdom conscience, reinvigorating those kingdom sensibilities. So we're going to talk about Jephthah. I keep saying Jephthah, but it's actually Jephthah. Sorry, Jeph and then Thar. Jephthah's daughter. And you might go, why are you talking about Jephthah's daughter? Uh, Most or many sermons will typically downplay Jephthah's daughter because they don't want to probably deal with it. It is pretty terrible. In fact, it's atrocious. But I wanted to call it Jephthah's daughter because if I say to you, Jephthah, you don't think of his great victory over the Ammonites straight away, do you? Does anyone think that? You think of his daughter straight away. And I think there's a reason for that. And even I've got this great ancient Christian commentary, ACC. It's the best commentary out there. It's a collation and the computer's gone together and got all the comments on scripture from all the church fathers. It's amazing. Even they find it shocking. And they lived in a far more turbulent and terrible time than we did, or than we do in our current Western situation. They found it terrible as well. So I actually wanted to honour Jephthah's daughter, and I wanted to call this sermon that. So as you know, I've taken this little kind of device, I guess, in my sermons, which is, if you remember nothing else, remember this. So I did it the first time in my Deborah sermon, and I said, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Do you remember what it was? If you remember nothing from yesterday, colloquialism for my sermon a few day, uh, weeks ago. Do you remember? Soldier on. Soldier on. Yeah, so, so you got the gist of it. Yep. So that's what it was. It was March on, my soul be true. That straight out of Deborah and Barak's song. March on, my soul be true. March on, my soul be true. Uh, and we talked about it. You can go back a few weeks and refresh that. But at least you got the general gist of it, which is soldier on. But I don't know, that sounds a lot more poetic and probably is a bit more inspirational in those moments where you do need to be reminded of, march on, my soul be true. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this, one sentence, 23 words, one sentence, 23 words. Can you do it? Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25.5, written by King David. 23 words, one sentence, guide me in your truth and teach me. For your God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25, 5. Guide me in your truth. What is your greatest physical enemy? What do you think it is? We saw an enemy up there just before that Tim uh, was very confronting, put in front of us. What do you think your greatest physical enemy is? Is it terrorism? Is it ISIS? What do you think your greatest physical enemy is? Time? Carbs. <laughs> yes, carbs can be an enemy. Thankfully for those of us who are on a paleo, or in my case, paleo plus diet, uh, do have some carbs now and again. Uh, well, we, have, we have a lot of physical... Yeah, time is because time equates to a degraded uh, and degrading physiology. Our bodies are getting old. And that's definitely a physical enemy. Uh, China's on the ascendancy. The world's starting to get a bit troubled. What, what was once a, uh, a one superpower is, is changing. So there's a lot of physical enemies. Housing prices going down, down, down. People's livelihoods may be on the line. There might be another recession. There's another physical enemy. I wonder if that's our greatest physical enemy, though. What about, let's, let's, we're Christians, let's get spiritual. What's your greatest spiritual enemy? Maybe you're thinking Satan, that malevolent being that has nothing but murder and lies and deceit in mind. But what, yeah, what's, what are some of your spiritual enemies? And maybe emotional, you could tie in there as well. Time? Pride. pride, yeah, pride. Man, what does pride do to us? We'll see a little bit of that in Jephthah's daughter today. Apathy, complacency, yeah, absolutely. What else? Selfishness, yep. Maybe fear, anxiety. Grumbling. Grum- yeah, grumbling. Just, yeah, what does grumbling do to us? That's definitely enemy. 
Um, what do you think your greatest friend is then? We've been speaking physically of enemies, spiritually of enemies. What would be our greatest friend? And you might say, oh, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That'd be a very good answer. But maybe there's some other things. I won't get you to answer now, but I just want you to keep that in mind. What's your greatest enemy physically and spiritually? What's your greatest friend? I'm not going to answer it right now. I'm going to answer it as we go through the story of Jephthah and his daughter. But if you remember nothing else from today, remember this. Do you remember? (laughs) That was from yesterday. Um, But hopefully you can remember a few of these things. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25.5. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Is it surprising to you to ask God, the great creator of the universe, omniscient, omnipotent, like like his infinite power to say, oh Lord, guide me, teach me. And the, the intonation here is sort of every day, not just at church, every day, every moment. Actually, this is a great prayer. This is, a, this is one of those great little dynamic prayers. You know what I mean by dynamic prayer? So we're not actually devoted to prayer in a room somewhere in our little prayer closet or whatever you want to call it, but we're out and about. We're living life. Something happens. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my saviour. My hope is in you all day long. We have an argument with our wife or our husband. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Something happens at work. We're worried about finances. We're worried about this or that. Guide me in your truth. And this is a great way of articulating God's word into a dynamic prayer. So this is a great gift that you're being given here. It's an awesome gift. So what are our greatest physical and spiritual daughters? We're going to, uh, spiritual daughters, <laughs> greatest physical and spiritual. What are our greatest physical and spiritual enemies? Jephthah's daughter. Okay, so if you want to turn to Judges 10, We are going back in time. We're rolling back the the days. We're rolling back the years. We're rolling back the centuries. We're rolling back the millennia. And we're going back to around about, there's some dispute over this, but probably about 1100 BC, 1100 years before Jesus, 3100 years or thereabouts uh, before us now here in 21st century Toowoomba, 2019. And we've seen, as Ben took us through so well, we've seen a bit of a pattern start to emerge, which is that the Israelites serve God, love God for a very brief period of time. Then they follow all the gods of the nations. God gives them over to the enemy. It's, in, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I've really got to know God a lot better through judges. <laughs> so it's like, so he lifts his hand. Like You think about it. So if he's lifting his hand of protection and he's giving them over or selling them in a sense, which has the intonation again of giving them over, he's, he is actually protecting them all the time. So even when they go down this degraded path, he's protecting them. His hands. Are, and you can imagine, I've really been feeling for God a lot as I go through Judges because you think about it. You've got this incredibly loving being. He's, he's infinite in his love and in his emotions. And we'll see here, he's not a force. Like he feels things, okay? And so he got the Israelites, they're doing their thing. Now they start to follow the gods of all the nations, which we've seen has involves child sacrifice. It involves incredibly disgusting things that I won't even say in a PG sermon. Uh, and, and then it's like, well, if I keep, pro- this is God, if I keep protecting them, I'm protecting them in their evil and their sin. I'm protecting them as they kill their daughters and sons. And I feel for God, because like, what is he supposed to do? If he wipes them all out, which is what some gods of some religions are expected to do, well, then there's no people anymore. So he has to take the redemptive path. He, and when, as soon as he commits to taking the redemptive path, it, path, it gets gruesome, Oh, it gets ugly, it gets complicated, it, it, at least for a time. Think, think about how God feels. You're going to see this shortly. So I'm just going to read through the story, make some comments. And what I want us to do as a part of our mega series is get into the sandals or the shoes of the Israelites, of the characters, and try to imagine this time. It's extreme, but oftentimes looking at the extreme of something brings clarity to us right now. So reading from verse 6 of Judges 10, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. Now think about this for a minute. You know what this actually means? They are serving every single god except Yahweh. 
like that, all those nations that are named through here, and then later on in the chapter, they've served pretty much any God they come across. Any God they see, they start serving, which means they are obligated to fulfill the duties expected of them as disciples of those gods, including child sacrifice and many other things that I won't name. God became angry with them in verse 7. He sold them in, and again, this intonation of being given over into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. Think about that, shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed to the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Now, if your child comes to you and says, Dad, I'm sorry for this particular thing. Yeah, sure, son. No worries. And maybe that particular thing is smashing their sister over the head with a brick. Thankfully, they were okay, but they said sorry. Yeah, okay, let's talk about that. That happens two times. It happens three times. It happens for what do you start to do as a dad? You're now caught in a dilemma because you love your son and you love your daughter, but your son is hurting your daughter. This is the dilemma that God faces every single day in the world, I believe. And we see it very clearly here because he has his, in a sense, son Israel, who has many sons and daughters that he loves, and they're doing terrible things already. And so they say sorry, but they keep saying sorry. But the fact is that people are still getting hurt. People are still dying. Sons and daughters are still being sacrificed to Molech. What do you do? Well, we see what happens. The Lord says in verse 11, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites and the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Ammonites oppressed you, you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Go to them. You've been serving them. Go to them. It's a perfectly legitimate question to ask. So from these first few verses... What do you think, if we put ourselves into the sandals of the Israelites, what do you think their, their greatest enemies are, physical and spiritual? What do you think they are? What do you reckon, Rick? The self. The self, yeah. In what way, though? Yeah. So, so selfishness is yeah, definitely an, an, an enemy, in a sense, a spiritual enemy. What else? Oh, yep. Yeah, so their choice in worship, so their idolatry. There's definitely some sort of enemy. They're enemies, yep. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. It's weird, isn't it? They're worshipping the gods of the enemy that is coming for them. Uh, Disobedience. Yep. So these are all legit enemies, you know. And if you think about the enemy threat, some of their names are like Molech, so he's known for child sacrifice. Baalzebub, he's known as Lord of the Flies. Like You can't really expect too much from a god called Lord of the Flies. Uh, there's terrible things where, that people do to themselves to serve these gods. They are certainly great enemies, but I don't think it's the greatest enemy, and I'll tell you why shortly. But if you remember nothing else from today, remember what? Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. Man, imagine if the Israelites had that burnt into their hearts. So, hmm, there's all this stuff and temptations and it seems pretty cool to worship these gods that everyone else is worshipping. But Yahweh, guide me in your truth and teach me. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Even just remember that. So in verse 15 of Judges 10, the story continues. The Israelites reply to the Lord, we've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Now notice what happens next. They don't just say they're sorry. They actually do something about it. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and they served the Lord and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. You can find all these places if you Google them. Archaeologists have found most of these places. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. 
Jephthah, the Gileadite. So Gilead is a, as a tribe or, um, or sub-tribe of Israel, was a mighty warrior or a clan. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Now, understand in an honour and shame culture, that's a pretty big deal. You've got all this mixed kind of stuff going on with so-called righteous people or righteous in their own eyes. And we don't know the full story behind Jephthah's father. But at some time, he slept with a prostitute. And as a result, uh, Jephthah is born. And he's born with basically wearing a cloak of shame or for all of his life. In fact, it's so bad that in verse 2, Gilead's wife, who then bears some other sons, when they are grown up, they drive Jephthah away. You won't get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. It's just pure selfishness right here. They just want more money. They just want more of the inheritance, and he's an easy target. Go. So Jephthah fled, because they were probably going to kill him if he stayed, and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of, I love the NIV, says adventurers. You think of some kid's cartoon. It's not adventurers. I like the NIV, but sometimes I don't think it gets it exactly right. And I only say that because I look at other commentaries and Bibles. It's actually marauders, land pirates. These are not adventurers. These are going around getting easy pickings as much as possible. They're a bunch of rogues, marauders. Um, And anyway, they gather around him and follow him. So again, so for Jephthah, what's his greatest enemy? What's that? Yeah, definitely his family in that case. His brothers turn against him. His birth, yeah, it's like he can't even control his birth, and yet it's, he's born into shame. What else? What, what do you see sort of developing here in Jephthah, perhaps? Or, or, or that's, that he's already breathing in? It's his culture, right? His honour and shame culture. It's honour and shame, this idea of honour and shame that has actually driven him away. A powerful ideology that actually has these kinds of effects. Um, Again, we could go further into what we see as spiritual and physical enemies, but let's keep reading. But before we do that, you're going to get sick of me saying this. If today you remember nothing else, what should you remember? Close. Guide me in your truth. So guide me and then God comes later. So it starts with a G, okay? It is. (laughs) But guide me, it is. It's the best version. You can have whatever version you want, but this is my version at the moment. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour and my hope is in you all day long. My hope is in you all day long. So we continue the story in verse 4 now from Judges 11. Sometime later when the Ammonites made war in Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. So they've gone to a marauder. They've gone to someone that makes his uh, business just like a pirate would, except on land. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? That's a good question. The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? And the elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So he's a pretty canny kind of guy. He's a pretty uh, clever guy. He wants everyone to hear. It's not so much before the Lord, but just before. If he goes before the Lord and gets this kind of oral contract, there'll be lots of people around. Because he doesn't want to be jibbed. He wants to make sure that they actually will hold their word. So again, we go, okay, what are some enemies for Jephthah and this point and also the Israelites? Well, there's the Ammonites who have shattered and crushed Israel. They are certainly great enemies. Again, you see the honour and shame and the culture. You see for Jephthah, perhaps a spiritual enemy is his fear of being deceived, his fear of being taken advantage of. Certainly great enemies, these ones. Again, having real effects. Jephthah's breathing in these circumstances. He's reforming them in his mind. He's coming to a construct, an ideological construct. We could call that a worldview. And then that worldview is driving his actions. But again, before we go further, if you remember nothing else, come on, Ben. (laughs) 
it's hard to remember things, isn't it? Especially when you're under pressure. I mean, I've obviously already memorized, so it's easy for me, but even I have to go back and look at it now and again. Uh, guide me in your truth and teach me. So, that, so, so it's a prayer, okay? It's a prayer. It's a prayer, prayer word. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. Thank you for helping me feel good about myself when you don't know it and I know it. So I should confess that. Um, anyway, you can know it too. Psalm 25.5, guide me in your truth and teach me. So continue on with our story, Judges 11, verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king with a question, what do you have against us that you have attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So what happens next is Jephthah engages in some diplomacy. He explains to them that it was, never was their land. It actually originally belonged to the Moabites. You'll recall your Bible history when Israel came out of uh, Egypt and as part of the Exodus, what did they do with the Moabites? Did they attack them? No, they went around them. They were told to go around them, so they did. So this whole premise of, oh, you've taken our land, it's a load of rubbish. Uh, the king actually took it, the Ammonite king took it from the Moabites. And Jephthah gently reminds him of that. He's, again, he's quite canny. He's quite clever. He doesn't want to go and like, have to put himself on the line or his people on the line. If he can kind of come up with a diplomatic solution, then let's do it. And then we drop down to verse 26, where he continues with his dialogue, his diplomatic dialogue. You can read that uh, rest of it later yourself. And you can read also around Jephthah. And we're, we're missing a few judges just because of time. But I encourage you again to keep reading in parallel with us. Uh, through the weeks and months ahead. So verse 26, Judges 11, for 300 years Israel occupied Heshbon, Aroa, the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I've not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. It's, it's interesting that he says me. I would have said us. Interesting. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Amnon, however, paid Ammon, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent to him. And then in verse 29, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh. He passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from there, he advanced against the Ammonites. So as the spirit of the Lord's come upon him, he's received this probably courage. He's received this probably inspiration or he's motivated. He's convicted. And as he goes, it's kind of contagious. People begin to join him wherever he goes. People are joining him. His army grows and grows and grows. He's inspired. He's fired up. Be careful. Sometimes when we get fired up, and it can even be because of the Holy Spirit, you might not believe me, but we can actually go and do silly things because we have actually been fired up. We are still people in the grip of the Holy Spirit. We still have choices that we make in the grip of the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe me, just go and read 1 Corinthians. You see people, Paul calls them spirit-filled. He actually talks about how they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and they do some crazy things. Because you're still a person. This is the beauty of our God. He doesn't dominate you and completely take you over. He actually becomes one with you, works in relationship with you. And we should be careful what we do with that incredible gift of inspiration, motivation, conviction, joy. We can do silly things. Who here has said something silly when they've been really happy? <laughs> yeah, like we just do that because our emotions kind of take us away. And if our emotions are fired up by the Holy Spirit, we should be careful. We should be really careful. Because so far, everything's kind of going well. And then he goes, oh, this Yahweh thing, Lord, God, oh, this is working out pretty well for me. Look at all these people. And I'm no longer a marauder. I'm now a leader. I'm going to make a vow. In verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, that'll be the Lord's and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. The, the, the interpreters of your Bible, I don't, who, 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 who here has, I will sacrifice it? Or who here has a more personified thing of them? So just so you know, in the Hebrew translation, it can easily be one or the other. It could be it as in a general thing, or it could be a who, a person. And the, and the commentators don't really know. The translators don't really know. I personally think, because I'm with Augustine, who also thought the same thing, so you can argue with him if you would like. Augustine, you know, just, this is so cool, you just quote a big name and all of a sudden you're safe from criticism. No. Um, again, this comes from the ancient Christian commentary, which I would really commend to you. 
This is what Augustine says, and <laughs> like he's quite funny actually. With these words, at any rate, Jethar did not vow some kind of animal that he could offer as a whole burnt offering according to the law. It is neither customary now, nor was it in the past, that cattle would run to meet generals returning victoriously from war. As far as mute animals are concerned, dogs often run to meet their masters and sport them with fawning servitude. But Jephthah could not have been thinking about dogs in his vow because it would seem that he would vow not only something unlawful, but also something contemptible and unclean according to the Lord. It would have been an insult to God. He says, I will sacrifice whoever comes out of my house. Thus, there can be no doubt that he was thinking of nothing else than a human being not his only daughter, however, yet who would have been able to surpass her in her father's eyes except perhaps his wife? So obviously you can try and clean this up a little bit, but you, I believe, have Augustine against you. You also have context against you because of what happens next. He's not just talking about an animal. He Remember what I said, has circumstances around him. He has culture around him. He has reformed them into his mind, into an ideological construct, into a worldview. That worldview was quite comfortable and familiar with child sacrifice. Quite comfortable with it. And so he does the obvious thing. Well, these other gods are pleased when we sacrifice our firstborn. I'll sacrifice mine. Maybe he's deep down he was hoping it would be a servant. I don't know. So what do you think Jephthah's greatest spiritual enemy is? What was that, bub? Himself, yeah. And what part, like what characteristic of himself? Pride again? Honour, maybe? This idea of who God is and what he wants? Yeah. His lack of knowledge, yeah. Yeah, we're actually getting a bit closer to where I've gone with this. But again, if you remember nothing else today, maybe you can see why I've chosen this verse from King David. What is it? Thank you, Tiff. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my saviour. And my hope is in you all day long. Psalm 25.5. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Oh, imagine if Jephthah had this burning in his heart. Imagine if he had it written on his wrist. Imagine if he had it on his door mantles like uh, Deuteronomy called for. Imagine that. Just that one thing. He would have paused and stopped, perhaps. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. Psalm, oh sorry, Judges 11, verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroah to the vicinity of Manith as far as Abel, Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Amnon. Now, normally when you are saved from your enemy that wants to kill you, there is great celebration. Jephthah's daughter has heard because she's already got the tambourines out. I'm not a big one on tambourines, but back then, they were actually something pretty cool. Now, I, I noticed with judges, and it's also just a part of who we are, I think, as Western kind of preachers, we, we want to have a bit of lightheartedness and stuff, and I, I get that. And I, I like a good joke, and I think we should laugh. But for this bit, I just want us to get real serious, okay? Because this daughter, evidently probably in her teens, has heard, and she comes out to meet her daddy to say, well done. You see what sin is doing here? You see what, what, what this dysfunctional worldview is doing here? You see what deceit is doing here? So Jephthah returns to his home in Mizpah, and who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourine, she was an only child except for her. He had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot keep. Some of us see that and deep down we're going, Yeah, but there's like, it's kind of cool that he wants to keep his vow. And again, this just shows us how twisted, how twisted our worldviews can become. Because if we are even hinting towards that, if we're even a bit conflicted over what Jephthah has done here, we have a problem with our worldview. 
And I'll tell you why in a minute from the word of God. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Honor, shame. I will not break this vow. She is also caught up in it. And she just wants to please her dad. Again, for her, she's probably had friends that were sacrificed. And don't think that it would have been an ugly thing. They would have made it a beautiful thing. The, the act itself was incredibly ugly, but they would have had their commercial kind of PR people that could have made it look something good because we're good at that as human beings. You would have had some nice advertisements around it. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised now that the Lord has avenged you of the, en the enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never, never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. And she and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father. So think about those two months. That's horrible. Now, Tim put up those ISIS Terrible ISIS photos, the Coptic Christians. Imagine being held, knowing this was about to happen. This is about to happen to her, the same thing probably. For two months. And her father, Jephthah, like we see that he loves his daughter. But he's caught up. He, this powerful worldview, this powerful truth construct, it's driving him to kill his daughter. Verse 39 when she returned to her father, he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. What do you think Jephthah's greatest spiritual enemy is? I think we're a lot closer to it now. What do you think it is? We could say his own pride, his own stubbornness. They're great enemies. They're great enemies, but it's something else, I believe. It's something that's actually our greatest enemy as well. And you think, okay, Jephthah, maybe he learns from this. No. In Judges 12, the story continues. And remember what Ben had said? We sort of have judges that are kind of pretty cool. We've got Deborah. We've got um, Ehud. Ehud with the left hand, the weak hand. We've got Barak. Now we get to, you know, Gideon's a bit of a mixed bag. Now we get to Jephthah, they're even more of a mixed bag. By that I mean doing some good things, some bad things. By the time we get to the end of Judges, there's not even a judge. There's just, there's just terrible atrocities being committed left, right and centre. And I'm actually trembling as I think about having to preach that last sermon on the concubine who's cut into pieces. It's, oh, it's disgusting. So in Judges 12... It appears that the men of Ephraim um, were a little bit put out that they weren't asked to go along with Jephthah. And Jephthah says, well, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle. I called and you didn't save me. And when I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and I crossed over to fight the Ammonites. So you know what happens next? Jephthah goes, I'll do what Deborah did. Deborah wrote a song about this and she shamed the people that didn't go with her in the song. No, that's not what he does. He, he's, he's on this power trip. Now, remember where he's come from. He's a marauder. He's a land pirate. He's used to killing to get what he wants. Now his shame is driving him, his ideological worldview, what we could call little my, my truth. My truth, this is my truth, is driving him. So he, you know what he does? He goes out and he starts a war. And there's this kind of interesting scene where he sorts out who's from Ephraim and who isn't by their accent, essentially. He gets them to say it. If they say it the wrong way, this shibboleth, he kills them. And 42,000 Ephraimites are killed. 42,000 fathers, brothers, sons are killed. We think this enemy that I'm about to highlight is just something that's kind of just off there. Yeah, we need to be aware of it, but it's not a big deal. We think this enemy is way less powerful than what it actually is. You know, we think maybe pride is our enemy. It is. Maybe we think stupidity, bloodthirst, culture, ISIS, global warming. Those things are all our enemies. And they are certainly great enemies. But here's what I think is the greatest enemy. Falsity. Falsity and all its brothers. Deceit, untruth, falsehood unreality all of us 
are in, to a certain extent, the grip of falsity. All of us. And when we see Jephthah, we see the natural extrapolation of it in all its gruesomeness. Think about it. Global warming, ISIS, these are all real problems. But what is the problem? Why can't nations get together? Because many of them are in this kind of falsehood, false worldview. We can just keep stripping the planet dry, keep pumping gases into the atmosphere, and it won't have any effect. Because we want, we want the economy to continue to grow. Now, I'm not saying that this is a political statement. I'm just saying that it's very easy, very easy for us to have a worldview that drives our behaviours. And it, it can come with terrible costs. We've just had the record heat in January. Meanwhile, America is having record cold. You know, we recently had the Freedom Building uh, in New York lit up to celebrate late-term abortion. Uh, and we see Jephthah's daughter and we're kind of a bit shocked by it. It's like so many daughters can be killed. You know, I, I, I used to do neonatal jobs. Babies as young as six months, you know, it, it, coming at six months and saved. <laughs> These little tiny, I mean, you could fit them almost in your hand. And they're in the back of the aircraft. They're hooked up to all this life-saving equipment. What, what a, oh, I mean, we look at judges and we think, what a mixed bag. That's terrible. Some good, so much evil. You know, all those resources for a little baby and yet just one, one chemical, one stab of the scalpel. Why? Because of a worldview, because of a falsity, because of an untruth. They're just, they're not actually really people. It's funny, you know, statistics are showing us that with late-term abortion and other things, it's not actually Christians that are now getting on the bandwagon. You know who it is? It's actually the Y gen, the millennials. You know why? Because science, ultrasounds in full colour, are showing us the nature of our sort of pro, pro-choice worldview. And again, I don't want to be political. I just want us to think about little babies because we always say, well, here's the mum. She needs to have a choice. And I know sometimes it gets complex. Like I know sometimes there might have been rape. or there might... Again, though, guide me in your truth and teach me. I don't even have an answer. Guide me in your truth and teach me. What if, what if each person in that situation went... I don't know, this is terrible, but guide me in your truth and teach me. For you're, you're God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. What about if those terrible people that go and blow up abortion clinics were to say, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. I truly believe that that would pierce this falsity. Falsity. Jephthah has my truth. We all have my truth. They've shamed me, I'll kill them. And the Israelites participate in that. They're living out and actualizing my truth. But there's a massive difference between my truth and the truth. What about the truth, which is always reality and which is always from God because God has created reality. So how he sees things and has made things is how things really are, not how we might see them in virtual reality. My truth God's truth. Our great enemy is falsity. It'll bring about terrible atrocities. It'll bring about divorce. It'll bring about adultery. It'll bring about all these enemies, that's so-called. It'll bring about world wars. My truth, the truth. You know, we see the atrocity of my truth in all its disgusting stench with Jephthah's daughter. He would have taken... I'm going to... You see this on TV anyway. He would have taken a knife and slit her throat and then burnt, his body, burnt her body to Yahweh. And you might find that confronting, but it's no more confronting than probably the slide we saw before. He would have watched her bleed out like, a, like an animal. And he would have thought, my truth, I'm pleasing God. Look at me. It's terrible, I'm torn, but my honour is intact. How often do we operate in my truth? Yeah, it doesn't lead maybe to child sacrifice, maybe it does. But it, it leads to, to terrible things, to atrocious things. And, and, and many times we think we're pleasing God. I know that he wasn't pleasing God. Do you know how I know this? The Psalms say, uh, I think it's Psalm 119, 165, it says, the sum of your word is truth. Do you know what you notice about Jephthah and all the judges? 
So back in Joshua's time, uh, which is really the, the dawning of the time of the judges, Joshua is told, meditate on my Lord day and night. We already have, we know that in a time of judges, Deuteronomy's there, Leviticus is there, Genesis is probably there, Exodus is there. If only, if only Jephthah had gone to someone who had a scroll or papyrus probably and gone, I just need to seek, seek this out. I'm going to sacrifice my child. And if someone, just someone had had the truth, God's truth, maybe, maybe it'd be up there. Maybe Deuteronomy, because they knew they were tempted to do this. Maybe Deuteronomy 12 was on the mantle, the door mantle, or maybe it was written on this person that Jephthah went to. And it was Deuteronomy 12, 31. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fires as sacrifices to, the, to their gods. Just that one little ray of light would have given him pause, I believe. But he continued to operate in my truth. You know, what's really interesting in Exodus, we're told that the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me, to me, every firstborn male. And I used to think, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're told to kill them because they're not. Augustine has the answer. What a cool dude. He said, for when God wanted and commanded that all the firstborn were to be consecrated to him, to belong to them, to him, he nonetheless wanted the firstborn of humankind to be redeemed by their parents so they would not entrust their firstborn children to God through immolation. So immolation is the burning and the sacrifice. So isn't it interesting? God had written into his law a, 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 a sharp, blunt edge object of truth to say, you will not take these children. They belong to me. A beautiful thought. In all the paganism of the age, all the child sacrificing, God writes into his law, don't. They belong to me. Not only don't, they belong to me. Wow. Augustine, we should read more of him. Well, not too much. Some stuff is written. Anyway, my truth and that truth. So my truth, Jephthah, that truth, innocent girl suffer and dies horribly. If only Jephthah had operated in God's truth. If only he'd had the book. You see, you've got Joshua meditate on the Lord day and night. Later on, you get towards Samuel and King David. And King David talks about the beauty of the law in Psalm 19. You don't see any mention of the book of law in Judges. Isn't that interesting and terribly sad? And what do you see in Judges, though? Atrocity after atrocity, sin after sin, everyone doing what they want. If he had gone to a person and said, I need to know, you know, guide me in your truth and teach me for your God, my saviour, my hope is in you all day long, or he didn't have the psalm then, but words to that effect. If he'd have gone to Leviticus, he would have seen God had actually written into the law and out for silly vows in Leviticus 5, 4 and 6. If a poor person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, we know it was evil because of the rest of the word. The sum of your word is truth. In any matter, one might carelessly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, in any case, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. He had this word. This word was there somewhere. Some person had it. We know because it makes it through to the time of the kings. Somebody had it, but he didn't see it. Instead of a lamb, it was his daughter. It was his daughter. This is what Joshua was told. Don't let this book of law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Can I be a bit stern with you for a minute? How many Bible verses have you actually memorized? Like, I find it hard work. It's, I've got an app and everything. Because I'm pretty sure you've memorised a lot of biblical concept, which is just as, I think, good. But how many specific words? Maybe this year in our deep water year, we should just at least start with this one. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. So the next time anxiety comes, or the next time fear comes, or the next time concern about whatever comes... Guide me in your truth. Or you're reading the Bible and you don't understand it. Guide me in your truth. We've got the full power of the Holy Spirit available to us. 
What if someone in the months of torture when Jephthah's daughter wandered the hills with her friends had operated in the truth and had said Leviticus 5.4, Leviticus 5.4. If a person thoughtlessly takes an oath, what if someone had said Leviticus 18.21, don't give any of your children to be sacrificed, but there was no one. You don't see one mention of it, the book of the law. And so the truth the truth is replaced with my truth and we see the result. And this is why I really want you to remember this. This is such a gift to you. It's a gift from God to you. It's a gift that will take you from my truth and all the consequences of my truth to his truth. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God my saviour and my hope is in you all day long. I love the rest of that psalm. It's a magnificent psalm. Go and read it if you can. Your greatest friend in this world, oh, wait a minute, this world is a world where you don't need to worry about deceit, hey? Because advertisers are so truthful to us, aren't they? The, the, the TV shows that we see are driven along by noble and true themes. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Over and over again, deceit. You know, I don't even need to give you examples. You could go and just Google them right now. But what about if... We truly embody, guide me in your truth and teach me. And I don't mean to go to a monastery and just read the word for the rest of your life. That is not what God intends for you to do. He intends for you to be a kingdom person, to live his word. But it might mean before you run off on some course of action, you actually just come to the word and go, I'm going to keyword search this thing I'm struggling with. I'm going to see what God's word says. You might say, I want to take a verse and put it deep in my heart so that I can use it as a dynamic prayer. Your greatest friend is the truthful God, God our Saviour, who offers to teach and to guide us. He offers that. <laughs> One sentence, 23 words, and as Judges gets more and more into my bloodstream through this mega series, I really feel for God. To be omnis omniscient means to have, you know, know everything, and, and, and to know all the counterfactuals, which is to know all the future courses of time and people's actions that could play out. So he knows when he, you know, he says he's grieved and, and in his misery, he kind of delivers Israel. But he knows that to deliver Israel means Jephthah's daughter will die. He knows 42,000 Ephraimites will die. And this is a, he faces this choice every day. It's a terrible choice. No wonder he has this misery upon him. You know, and I wonder this great, what was supposed to be a great victory, I wonder what God feels as he sees, you know, time play out for Jephthah and Jephthah's daughter and he sees this little girl coming out to say, Daddy, well done. How many others are there like that? It, it just blows my mind to know that he's infinite love and yet he has to feel this. So... I guess we know that judges, as all parts of the Bible, point us to Jesus and we are seeking the face of God and we're finding the face of Jesus. And what I found here is that this brings me to Jesus in such a special way because if God is willing to make that choice, I will save you and 42,000 Ephraimites will die and Jephthah's daughter will die, he must know something. Hey, He must be planning something pretty darn big, something very grand, it, it, it must be able to, with that burnt carcass of what was once a beautiful daughter, or that just skeleton, whatever's left of Jephthah, the 42, it must somehow be able to get into that and somehow reverse it. it whatever God's planning must include, because we know he is infinite love and we know he's infinitely powerful, so it must be something amazing. He must be up to something that will take death and suffering and turn it around somehow, reverse it. He must be up to something that will bring hope to Jephthah's daughter. I mean now, whatever's left of her. He must be up to something that in our dead bodies, we will all rest in the grave unless he comes. He must be up to something pretty grand. Uh, I've got a picture. Oh, yes. What is that? What's that picture? It's an open tomb. He is up to something because he doesn't just see all the counterfactuals play out. He sees himself come out of that door and sacrifice himself. What in Jephthah sacrifice himself? Because he is not the Messiah. He is not God Almighty. He is not Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was there 
who weeped probably at Jephthah's daughter, knew that one day he could make that somehow redeemed. It doesn't take away from the evil of it, but he could somehow get inside that and redeem it. What a saviour. What a saviour. What a saviour. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and he did it for Jephthah's daughter. He did it for your daughters. He did it for my daughters. He did it for me. He did it for you. What a saviour. I just want us to listen to this um, as we come to communion now. And in fact, what I might do, I'll just go back a slide and we'll actually get the bread and the cup. I might get, uh, oh, Tim, would you mind breaking the bread for us today, brother? I realise it's a little bit muggy or maybe I just feel muggy. Um, And I didn't actually want to go this long, but once again, I'll blown it right out but I do want us to think every time you see something in judges that it's really appalling so it's easy just to go oh God's planned all that out well I don't think he's planned out people's evil I think he lifts his hands at times and evil then occurs but he knows that in that that meaningless suffering of a little girl or a teenage girl he superimposes the death of his son and brings into mind the new kingdom. We're told that Jesus, for the hope that was set before him, endured the cross. We need that hope. And that's why I say again, this is a gift. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. When you see things that you don't understand, guide me in your truth and teach me. So we're going to remember this magnificent Saviour. We're going to remember the Lord Jesus in this beautiful communion meal. We're going to remember his body broken for us in the bread. We're going to remember the cup. And so I invite you shortly to come forward after I've prayed, keep the cup. And we'll just listen uh, to this song that I've chosen as we contemplate our great saviour. Father, I thank you because you are God, our saviour. And our hope is in you all day long. And the next part says, Remember, O Lord, your great love and mercy because they are from of old. Your great love and mercy was at the garden. Your great love and mercy was at that terrible scene with Jephthah's daughter. Your great love and mercy all through the time of the kings. Your great love and mercy embodied on the cross. Your great love and mercy with us now in the 21st century. Remember your great love and mercy for they are from of old. Remember not our sinful ways our rebellious ways, the ways of our youth. Remember us, O Lord, because you are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He instructs Willowburn, me and you. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs the humble. O Lord, help us to see clearly so that we can humble ourselves, defeat this great enemy of deceit, that comes from Satan and from ourselves. Help us to remember you afresh, what you have done for us on this magnificent day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of rescue for every single daughter like Jephthah's daughter. Oh, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.